have to stay for second service now? Is that what you guys are going to sneak out? We're all going to look at you. No, just kidding. <clears throat> just kidding. Okay. Thanks again, Ellen. That was fantastic. Uh, well, my little, uh, my, my usual um, post-testimony spiel whenever we do these things is to encourage you guys to, wherever you're at, uh, is to see your, your own story in there somewhere, whether you're even not a Christian yet or, or if you are. Uh, everyone's story is a little bit different, and yet everyone's story is kind of the same. And so look for those similarities of whatever it was with her story and, and to see God's grace uh, shown towards you in the same way because God doesn't change. It's the same God, same grace, uh, one faith, as the scriptures say, there's only one faith, uh, one Christ, one baptism, one Lord of all, to quote from Ephesians. So anyway, uh, so thanks a ton for that, Ellen. Um, Guys, we are in Judges right now. Um, I forgot if I introduced myself. I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If, uh, I didn't say that already. Welcome if you're, if you're brand new. We're in a series right now in Judges, which is the seventh book of the Old Testament. If you'd like to turn there in a phone app or in a Bible, great. Uh, but this will all be on screen here uh, too. So just recap a little bit and to give you a bird's eye picture on what Judges is. Uh, Judges is basically, we subtitle it here, Hope for the Hopeless, because it's a very hopeless book in some ways. And yet with God, it's full of hope. God is a God of hope. He is the author of hope. He's the giver of hope. He's the creator of hope. He's, he's everything in regards to hope, especially in the face of hopelessness. And so uh, just an invitation to see that in this book just on, on a wholesale level, and you'll see it more uh, today. But this is a part of Israel's history in the Old Testament. This is all happening against the backdrop of God creating the world, darkness coming into the world on the heels of people rebelling against God, holding the hands of the tempter, the devil, the serpent, we'll actually talk about that a little bit later today, it comes up again in, in Judges 4, but holding the hand of the devil, doing it, uh, following his lead, and seeking to defame God and, and make more famous the self. So not just kind of disobeying God's commands, but, but really kind of putting ourselves on the throne of the universe, saying, worship me. That's what sin is. After that occurs, God stays, there's consequence for that, as you might imagine. Death comes into the world, all things become cursed, people are driven, exiled from God. But God stays just, just strangely and kind of surprisingly patient and gracious towards people, towards sinners like us, and starts to move towards them, make promises to them. And it's, it starts with a, a person named Abraham and a family, and then they grow into a nation, Israel. And this is a part of Israel's history where God starts to show this, again, kind of repetitious grace in this land that God's given them, which again is a gift. We talked about that week one. But given them this land where he himself says, I will dwell, and, and you'll be even closer to me than you are now. And it's Hope for a new Eden, if you know that story, a new garden where God will be and he'll walk closely with them again. And so it's part of this progressive revelation of God where he's progressively revealing more about his character and about his plan for redemption, not just of people, but all of, all of the earth, all the cosmos, to decursify it, to undo death, to reverse it, to kind of enter into it himself through, through his son, which we'll get to that, but then, then undo it. And in Judges, it's just a part, it's a... It's a kind of a blip on the radar or, you know, one notch in the timeline of all of this. Not an end to itself, but rather helping to tell that story. It gives us these many stories, as it were, of redemption. Many stories of sin and consequence and then grace in the face of that consequence and kind of further exile from God and further kind of, you know, uh, uh, consequence for the sins that the people of Israel were committing, who, again, are examples of us as human beings. So, uh, so we'll see more of that today. We're kind of, we're approaching the middle of the book. Well, I guess not quite, but we're getting there. Uh, we're picking up speed. And the cycle in of the book, so it judges then, as I kind of was alluding to, is a, is a book of cycles. There's, it's plural here, so judges. There are many different kinds of judges in, in the book. Um, the cycle here is basically this, uh, that repeats over and over again. We'll see it again today. 
Israel commits grievous sins repeatedly. Then God raises up another nation to rule over them. The people cry out for deliverance from them. God hears their cries, raises up a judge or a deliverer. So if you're new to this, judges don't mean you know, the black robe with the gavel kind of courtroom judge idea. It's a, a tribal chieftain or a military captain kind of idea, a leader, military leader idea. So raises up a judge to save them. The judge uh, saves and rules for several years to maybe several decades of years, protecting them, leading them, ruling them, continuing to save them. The judge dies. And then the cycle starts all over again. Grievous sin, consequence, etc., etc., etc. And then also, remember the cheat sheet here. If you've been here, we've seen this a few weeks now, but uh, simple cheat sheet interpretationally. This is, and what this means here is this is not just history, this is theology. So if it was just history, we wouldn't make these kind of connections. And, and furthermore, wouldn't see the New Testament itself, the latter parts of the book, make these kind of connections itself about the former parts. And so the Bible says about itself is that it's all about Christ. It's all about God's plan of redemption. And the earlier parts help to tell that story by way of foreshadowing and prophetic narrative and just kind of flat-out prophecy. And so, or typology, if you know that idea, just the study of types or the, the, the presence of these instances of Christ and New Testament realities before they fully come into history. So a simple cheat sheet then interpretationally, and I say albeit crude here because it's not always this simple, uh, it's complex, and there's a lot more going on than just this, but this is the main piece. And that is to see judges as forerunning pictures of Christ. He's the ultimate judge, the one who ultimately saves us, and the one who's ultimately sent by God in response to the cries of sinners who are oppressed by sin. Israel, the nation, and sometimes the judges, because they're wicked men they're, uh, and women, they're not perfect, are pictures of, of us. Other nations are pictures of sin and death and the devil, the ultimate enemy. So, in other words, lesser enemies are a picture of greater enemies in the Bible. That's an important uh, pair of dots to connect there. Uh, as well as the problem just being separation and exile from God that the judges kind of temporarily undo and seek to sort of resolve on a temporal basis. Uh, but Jesus does finally and ultimately when he comes into the world. Land, then, and rest, also pictures of Christ and salvation uh, experienced. Um, so, Again, this is new to you. This might just kind of fly away over your head. This might seem a little out of left field. Uh, we'll keep connecting dots uh, throughout the series, but I give this here to, as a way of reminder for a lot of you, but also to teach that Judges is not just history. If it's just history, at best, it's a bunch of strange stories with a moral, at best. If it's about Christ, if it's uh, kind of a gospel-anticipating narrative, then it's about Jesus ahead of time, and then we learn more about our salvation, more about Jesus in these narratives that we don't in the New Testament. There are aspects to these symbols about Christ that we don't get verbatim in the New Testament that kind of fill out the whole kind of definition of who God is and the definition of how he came into the world and kind of with what veracity, type of veracity, and how, the, how much love and how much grace repetitiously he brought into the world on the heels of our cries out to him. So... So have this in mind as we read. We're going to read from uh, Judges 4 today. Judges 4, 1 to 24. Deborah, Barak, and Jael, a team of judges. Uh, we'll talk more about that after I read. So let's just follow along here with verse 1 and following all the way through 24. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hegoim. 
Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, which are basically tanks of the day, and Israel had none of them. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidit, Lepidit, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. Those are tribes of Israel. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zainanim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hegoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hegoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died, in case it's unclear if he died from that injury or not. Verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pushing, pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. All right. Now we can all go to bed for that nice, that nice uh, you know, story there. Okay. Preaches itself, right? As we've been saying, uh, saying all, all series so far. Not really. Uh, but here's a summary of the story so far. It's a great story, uh, a lot of good uh, gospel truth in this. We'll talk about some of those things today. Uh, summary, though, because there's a lot going on, it's kind of complicated. Basically, the story, in a few words, think back to the, the cycle I was talking about. Israel sins, is oppressed, there's consequence for that sin. 
Then they cry out to God, and God delivers them. He speaks and assures through Deborah and prophesies through her. He fights by the hand of Barak, and he finalizes by the tent peg of Jael. And then the people of Israel further execute the victory against uh, Jabin uh, before entering a time of rest for 40 years. So a few things for clarity here. Uh, Deborah is uh, said to be judging as a prophetess at, at this time. So she's the, the one judge in the book who doesn't fight physically, but guides with prophecies and guides with wisdom and exemplifies God's presence. Uh, so it's a little bit different. If you guys have been noticing the pattern, she kind of breaks that pattern a little bit, but she's still not like, you know, black robe and a gavel. She's judging with like spiritual wisdom and guidance and with an intent to help, fight, help others fight physically and win these battles to de-oppress the people. Barak and Jael aren't called judges, but in a way they help to execute Deborah's judging, and so in that way can be considered judge-like, a part of this kind of, you know, sort of trifecta then of judges who help to free Israel from the oppression. They each play a very important part. Chapter 5, which we didn't read uh, for time's sake, we'll refer to some of it a little bit later, but chapter 5 is a poetic song that Deborah and Barak sing concerning the victory that Barak and Jael won over Sisera. So chapter 4 is the story, the narrative. Chapter 5 is the, is the poetic song about it, and they complement. So they, they do go together. There's some things in chapter 5 that are super important that we'll uh, get to in a bit. All right, so the main characters then, just to connect these dots for clarity, De to go back to our cheat sheet idea, Deborah and Barak and Jael uh, refer to Christ, and in some cases, us. We'll talk about that. Uh, Sisera and Jabin refer to sin and death and the devil. Uh, these lesser enemies, uh, Sisera and Jabin, refer to the ultimate enemies and kind of whisper them in terms of how they uh, oppressively rule and how wicked they are. Israel refers to us, watching and receiving salvation passively. And yet you notice at the end of the, of the passage, and we saw this last week a little bit as well, they're still fighting, but, all, all, but always in the shadow of the first fight that was wrought for them. A big theme in the Old Testament, there's a head figure, a king, a savior, in this case a judge, who, who fights first, and they sort of cut off the head of the snake, and then the people of Israel sort of go in after that and put their foot on the writhing body of the snake to kind of further execute the victory. So uh, it happens here, judges fight first, they, they kind of slay the general or the king, and then Israel sort of pursues. Or think of like David and Goliath, if you know that story, David cuts the head off Goliath, then, and only then, do the people of Israel sort of storm the ravine and take the fight to the Philistines afterwards. Uh, it, it is always in that order to show us that it's always in Christ as Christians, Jesus, as he himself says, binding the strong man so that the house can be plundered. So the strong man, sin, death, the devil, the bigger problem is slain and dealt with by Christ first by grace, and only then can we pick up the sword, so to speak, and, and fight ourselves and kind of further execute and live in light of, victoriously, that victory won for us. So I'll come up a little bit today and then a little bit more clearly as the series goes on. So what I want to do today is review a couple of broad gospel themes in Judges that I did this last week too. So look at the repeated themes and underline them afresh or for those of you that are new to tell you for the first time these kind of big picture Good news of Jesus Christ ideas. So, so where are these broad grace over works principles, gospel ideas? And then talk about a couple of particular things that are unique uh, to this team of judges idea. So 
Deborah and Barak and Jael, the team of judges, there's unique things about God and about salvation here whispered and looked ahead to that we just don't see in the other judges as clearly. And so we'll look at those and spend a little bit more time on that second. So first, uh, by means of review then, we see this idea of the headship principle. I, I haven't called it this yet in the series, but basically this is what it is. The headship principle is in play, meaning, I already talked about this, a singular judge, or in today's case, like three judges, but the singular judge idea fights for the masses. The masses do not save themselves. The head is cut off the snake. The king, the king and the general are defeated first. The strong man, the, in this case, story's case, the 900 chariots, are, the tanks are subdued so that the rest of the battle can be fought then with God's hand and with his strength in the people, but still participated in by, by the people. But the headship idea, the judge, uh, in, in this case, is, is a picture of Christ, and therefore, it's by grace that we're saved, not by works. At the hand of these three judges. And so the, the big thing we see a lot, going back to the, the pattern or the cycle, is that we cry out, God's the one who hears and sends and delivers. That's huge. Never get tired of that. that this is the gospel. And the fact that he, he does respond, don't take that for granted. The fact that God does respond at all, and the fact he does not conditionalize his response and say, I will respond if you do this first, or if you live this way, or if you think this way, or if you pray harder, or if I feel like you mean it. None of that. God's not that cruel. He's loving and gracious. You know, so don't take, don't take this for granted. He didn't have to do this, though, because his justice could have been exerted. He didn't have to respond. But when he does, in this Old Testament time, it's very New Testament-y. That he's like breaking his own covenantal rules. We talked about that a little bit last week. I don't really have time for that today to recap all of that. But he's breaking his old, old covenant rules where it is about conditions, and he's responding in an unconditional way here, simply to the cries for help which is classic mercy. This is what merciful people do. And here, this is what a merciful God does. He responds this way to, to cries for help. Grace, not the works of Israel, not the works of the church, but the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're seeing here in the background, sort of implied, but also explicit in the fact that it's clearly the judges who save, not, not the people. So more specifically then, Barak in jail, image Christ specifically, and the type of victory he wins for us on the cross against the truest of enemies, which is sin. And so what happens then when we make these connections on, a, on like a big picture level is go back then, look at the details and say, what are the details under the umbrella of that theological statement tell us in a unique way about the nature of his atoning work for us on the cross? And I put a couple examples up here. We'll look at more throughout the sermon and throughout the series, but just a couple of quick things. Like when it says, not a man was left, and so he died, you know? This is like, yeah, we could have gotten that with, you know, a tent peg through his temple into the ground. But I think it's there because it, it's meant to image something about the length to which he goes to save and, you know, and the type of veracity he has and, you know, the extent to which he kills. It's not, in other words, you know, when Jesus came into the world, he didn't come in to help us manage our sin or, or put a leash on it, but actually kill it, all of it. I said last week, Jesus is not a diplomat here. He is, and that's not a political statement, by the way. It's a theological one. <laughs> but he's a warrior king 
He's a warrior king. So the New Testament says things like, in, the, in like Romans 8.13, I don't have this on screen, but it says to Christians, put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. So as God leads, as you're filled now with the Spirit of God and recreated, we're actually called to kill sin, not to talk it out or manage it or be a diplomat with it or put a leash on it, but to actually kill it because he's first killed it and he is killing it within our lives. That's huge. That's a, that's a huge difference. A lot of good news there. It's a big call in our life, but it's also full of grace. But he's clear. Jesus is, Jesus is when he's, it's clear here with Israel cycling downwards. If, if you know the Gospels stories when Jesus is calling disciples and they're full of their own level of messiness. You know, we, we don't have it within us to not listen to sin. You know, we, we, need, we need a type of Savior who doesn't just pat us on the back and say, don't listen to that silly voice in your head. You know, just kind of change your way of thinking or go and live a little bit differently. But we need a Savior to drive a tent peg into, into our sin's temple. That's what we need. And that's what he does. So all these things are really important, just bird's eye view, gospel ideas that we, we've said before, we'll keep saying it, uh, but to come back to again and again, if you read this for the first time, maybe read this with your kids, uh, or with, a, with someone who's not a Christian yet, kind of showing them what the essence of the faith really is. These are great stories, by the way, to go to and talk about what is the essence of Christianity. Uh, the, the, these are wonderfully kind of uh, detailed shadows of the essence as they lead us to Christ and tell us about grace, not works, and about the, the, the nature of the, the atonement, what Christ did for us there. But for sinners, again, and I, I was thinking of this question this morning. I'll ask you guys. I'll relay it to you. But have you, have you sinned more than once in your life? If so, then Judges is for you. Because Judges is about repeated sinning, and it's about repeated grace. So if you've sinned more than once, then, you know, then you're a part of this narrative too, and so am I. And then the good news is, well, God doesn't just like respond once and then get sick of Israel's cries, but he keeps responding. He's the most patient most kind and most loving being in the universe. Never forget that. The most just as well, and that's good. We need an evil-hating God to be good. But he's also at the exact same time the most patient, kind, and, and loving God and or being in the universe. All right, so with that said, guys, if you just review things there that we'll see spill into this next section a bit. But, but again, um, never get tired of this stuff. And as you go back, there are details but if you miss them, as long as you're getting this, you're getting the meaning of the book. The meaning of the passage is Christ ahead of time, grace overworks ahead of time, and the nature of the atonement, the decisiveness of the atonement uh, ahead of time. All right, so with that said, though, let's move on to a couple particular gospel themes that arise uh, in Judges 4 and 5. So first is Barak's faith. Uh, verse 8 says, Barak said to Deborah, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. It's a really important part of the passage uh, that needs explaining. Uh, it's, it can be read one of two ways, positively or negatively. First, the negative side, actually, is, could be read this way. Deborah saying, Barak you should have believed that you could do this yourself. Now your punishment 
is that God will use someone else to save. In this case, JL, this, this woman. Or the, po- the positive side, which is more likely, is to see Barak wanted Deborah, a prophetess and a judge, to go with him because she spoke for God. And who wouldn't want her there? And Deborah then just describes that he won't be the one to deliver the final blow, but a woman will, J.L. So this is not punishment for him. It's okay for him not to get the glory. Isn't that a pretty strong biblical theme? It's okay for him not to get the glory. She's just describing fact. And Deborah's just doing what Old Testament prophets do sometimes, predicting the future outcome for God's people. This latter reading is much more likely. Barak's desire to fight with Deborah's backing is a good desire. One of faith, actually, the Bible itself says. Later in Hebrews 11, it says this about Barak. And by the way, this is all we know about Barak, these couple of sentences. And this is what the New Testament has to say about his actions. Barak, by his faith, conquered kingdoms. Barak had faith here. So it's not just a lesson then in teamwork but expression of where his heart is towards God. If it's a lesson actually at all, it's a lesson in faith. Brock is a man of faith. He's a man of trust. He's a man of God-centeredness and with the right kind of posture of dependence on God. That's what we're seeing. So again, that fits really well with Deborah. Deborah is an image of God, a prophetess, one who speaks. The fact that he wants her there is is an image of him wanting God there. So if you go with me, I will go means I can't do this alone, which means he knows his limitations, he knows his sins, he knows he needs God's help through Deborah. This is faith because it's like saying, I can't save myself, I can't do anything good without God, I'm not enough, I'm weak, I'm sinful, God save me. And that, by the way, is what faith really is biblically and just in reality. It's dependence, it's a declaration of need. It's not a, this watered-down idea that, which is out there, has been for a long time, but this idea that faith is just acknowledging that God might exist. And there's tons of contrary evidence to that, but faith is just saying, you know, I know that's there, but I'm just going to believe that he exists anyway. That's not Christian faith. You know, the demons believe God exists. I mean, it's more than belief he exists. Faith is dependence. Faith is trust. Faith is believing God is there, that he came into the world and he died for our sins, and we can, we can depend on that now. And we do depend on that. We trust in it. That's what Barak is doing. And so the, the big question here for us, or the takeaway for Christians in the room at least, is like Barak, will you be remembered for having this kind of faith? He's being remembered for this, which is pretty cool. Uh, he's being remembered, just a couple of verses, for being a man who had dependence on God through Deborah. You know, and when we remember, we actually just finished a, a class, some of you were a part of this, but a church history class at our church for the past, like, uh, uh, six weeks or so. It's really good. We'll do it again next year. When you remember great Christians, though, this is what we remember. Weak men and women who trusted deeply and who were connected deeply to God through that weakness. So we really don't remember the people so much but the God who saved them and the God who empowered them. Christian heroes are bad people who trusted mightily in a good God. Who trusted mightily in a good God to save them and who trusted mightily in a good God to help them uh, save or, or express God's salvation to others. It's really good news. 
I guess I've read church history before, but it is kind of like this one big, long process of scratching your head saying, that guy led a church? What? That's the guy that wrote all these hymns I love? That's the guy that, you know, wrote this text or is known for being such a hero in the faith? And they're like really, really, really bad people. And, and the whole time you're thinking, well, man, but does that happen today? Or have I done that? And then the light bulbs go off and, and we have. Like we're not good people. So when we celebrate faith, then it's not, you know, within the person. We celebrate like Barak. And there's not a lot described here with his life, but he's, one, he's part of Israel who, is, who are big time sinners right now. Um, sinful, broken, weak people who still said, I believe God is powerful enough to save even me. If you pray that, you're a Christian. If you pray that, you're a person of God. This is what Barak's saying uh, through kind of the lens of Deborah here as he wanted God, knew he knew, needed God's backing in the field of battle. And, and here's the good news for those of you that aren't saved or aren't Christians yet. All, this is, this is like, the whole Bible says this. All that God requires to be saved is that kind of faith. That's it. Not anything from you except simple trust and gazing at what God has done in the world through Jesus Christ for you. Faith and trust in it. That's it. Active faith, active trust, active belief, active putting all your eggs in the basket of Jesus' death and resurrection and saying, I believe that's the way that God is pulling me up from the ground in the pit. Because he walked out of that tomb, I believe that I will as well in the wake of it. That's all that's required. The first piece of this is Barak's faith. Uh, the second is Jael. Looking at her for a minute, Jael's head-crushing assassination of evil. Let me read this one more time. This is that sort of the climax of the whole thing. Verse 4, or chapter 4 anyway. 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while, she was lying fast, or while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Okay, so let's talk about Jael for a minute. Jael's an interesting woman. We, we know of very little about her other than that she's passionate uh, and, and apparently understands how to kill Canaanite generals quite effectively as, as a tent-making woman. That's what she did for, for a profession. So anyways, good with a hammer, good with a tent peg. And that she's courageous, we know this, that she risks her life. She riskily takes matters into her own hands. And, you know, and actually, a bit of an aside here, but the manner by which Sisera dies, a mighty general, mighty general at the hands of, of this woman, is supposed to be quite shameful here for him. We talked about shame last week, if you were here for that. I'm not going to talk about it this week, no time. But just if you were here, take everything we talked about last week in regards to how God atones for and, and heals us from and, and kind of dies with our shame wrapped around his neck. Take all of that thematically and put it right on top of this story as well. It's meant to be repeated. It's a whole other Ehud and Eglon experience from last week if you were here for that. Same thing. Again, rep, God loves repetition and we're seeing it here, here again. But for today, I want to look at the manner of Sisera's death. And so um, without justifying JL's deception because she's kind of sketchy here, uh, there's a whisper of something theologically that's super important. And to help us see this, I want to read from part of chapter 5. So I mentioned that earlier. We're going to read from part of chapter 5 here. 
uh, which is, remember, the, the song that recounts what happens narratively in chapter 4. And as I read this, remember the, the connection we're making between J.L. and Jesus. And in this case, J.L. is a woman who is also a judge-like Christ figure. Those two things together are very important. A woman who is a judge-like Christ figure. Now, with that connection in mind and that cheat sheet I showed you earlier, uh, let's read from chapter 5, verses 24 to 27. Again, Barak and Deborah are singing this sort of amongst the people of Israel after Jabin is uh, pressed against and killed. All right. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Like that poetry. It's also kind of creepy, but it's pretty great. So, um, Actually, I was picturing um, Heber, it's like Heber, right, her husband this past week thinking, I wonder what Heber said about jail, you know? Like, was he kind of like, yeah, that's my wife, she's passionate, you know? Just kind of, I just kind of let her go sometimes because she's passionate, I don't know. I was just kind of thinking about their interaction, but uh, anyway, who knows? Speculation. But, okay, so he, here's the question, though. Judges 5, 27 and 24, with this poetic sort of commentary on the narrative, what other parts of the Bible come to mind? For those of you who've read the Bible before, or other, or other parts of it, what other parts, do any parts come to mind as we see the language employed here to describe how exactly J.L. is killing Sisera? Or what other parts might help us interpret this symbolic cryptic poem? Maybe ones that use the same language? And relatedly, why does the Bible choose to include the precise manner of his death here? Couldn't it just have said, J.L. killed Sisera, period, and saved some ink or a hand cramp? Why is it so descriptive? And the answer is, the big answer, there's more to say than this, but the big answer is, the reason why it's so descriptive, the reason why we have this detail, the reason why it's so gory in this particular manner, the reason why spikes and crushing and heads are, are depicted here, is to point us back to something earlier in the story that some of you may have picked up on. To point us back to what we call the Proto-Evangelium, which is a word meaning first gospel or first gospel promise from Genesis 3.15. When, this is very early on in the Bible, after sin comes into the world and Satan, the, the prince of demons, the tempter of humankind, disguised as a serpent, deceived Adam and Eve, God says to Satan, I will put enmity... Or, or this kind of tense problem or war between you and the woman, quoting now from Genesis 3.15, you and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. And so there it is, highlighted, so it's easy to see. There it is. A promise that God would, through Eve, one of Eve's offspring, crush the head of the prince of demons and implied the, the prince of demons or Satan's work, which is sin. Now, ultimately, this refers to Jesus. He, he's the ultimate seed of Eve, the Bible says, who is struck in the heel 
meaning kind of temporarily harmed. But then as uh, 1 John 3.8 says, he ultimately on the cross destroys the work of the devil. So very clearly, Jesus Christ, why did he come into the world? This was his mission, to destroy the works of the devil, which are sin and then kind of the byproduct of that, death. But here's the cool thing then. So as we draw a line between Genesis 3.15 and Jesus, there's one more kind of notch along the way, and it references J.L. So in the meantime of that story, in the dark recesses of the Old Testament, we get a glimpse of a woman who, in an Eve-like way, crushes the head of the enemy of God's people, Sisera. And so the linguistic connection and the theological connection is to see that head crushing, apparently, is a pretty big deal for God. And as God is unfolding his promise in the world, he has this happen to remind us that he's still in control and he still has a plan to come through on this promise, even at this juncture in history, given so long ago. And here's the progression. God promises, Jael embodies, and she reminds, and Jesus fulfills. And this is why the manner of Sisera's death is described. It's hope. It's hope for Israel, you know, having all these physical enemies. It's hope that the attuned Israelite singing this, writing this, being rem- past next generations being reminded of this, it's a reminder that God has not forgotten his initial promise to destroy sin. See, that happened first. And then these other judges' stories happened in a similar kind of reflecting kind of way on that promise to show us that this has priority. This is what he's really doing. The devil is a bigger enemy than Jabin and Sisera and all of these enemy nations combined. They're just glimpses, glimpses and whispers and handholders to, to the true evil, the true enemy, but they're not the main enemy. In fact, all of, really, Judges 4 and 5, the whole book, but Judges 4 and 5 could be subtitled something like God saying, I will never forget my promise to save you. Let JL remind you of what this whole thing's about. A terrible evil has come into the world. It has many faces, and you've all shared in it. But I will cut off the source. I will crush his head. I will purge and wash the evil from your heart and save you to be with me. My son, Eve's and JL's seed will do this. That's what this is kind of hearkening back to, but then kind of by way of Genesis 3.15, we get back to Christ. This is just another hint and reminder. Cryptic, hard to pick up on, in the deep recesses of the Old Testament, but God cares about those moments as well. He cares about those instances in people's lives where it just seems mundane and not that important. He even uses those to kind of redeem them and, and make them part of the greater story, part of the greater narrative. So this is why the manner of Sisera's death is described. It's, all these stories are not islands, remember. They're all thematically connected. Head crushing is a pretty big deal in the Bible. It's a major, major theme that tells us what the main point is. All right, so here's a couple things then, just by, by way of wrapping, wrapping this up. I guess there's, um, yeah, a few things. Um, De- it's interesting, Deborah is, um, maybe you've heard of Deborah before and assumed she was the main character. She's not really. It's interesting. She's important, very important, but she kind of falls back in, in the kind of the shadows of the story a bit, and Barack and Jael kind of come forward. Even when she says that victory's going to be given to the hands of a woman, it's not about her. It's about Jael. 
She's not talking about herself there. She's talking about this other woman, Jael, who's distantly related to Israel, but you know, barely even an Israelite, which is interesting too, another kind of theme there. But, um, but Deborah's still a part of this, and she's the judge, the name judge. And I think one thing that we do see from her is that she is a prophetess, and in that she assures people. And I, I don't have this on screen, but uh, go back and look, or just remember in there where she says, right in the field of battle, she says to Barak, again to encourage him, has not the Lord gone before you? I mean, talk about, that's just like, that's great encouragement. That's like, that's like Christian encouragement right there, you know. Has not the, law, the Lord gone before you? Implied, isn't he out there fighting already? Preparing the field for battle? Ensuring victory? This reminded me of uh, questions in the New Testament, like in, the, in Romans 8 where it says, who shall bring any charge against God's chosen? In other words, if God is chosen and saved and redeemed and washed by grace, who shall say to God, bad choice? Or, you know, there's a way for them to fall away. Or we can charge them now with something that God has exonerated them from. You know, there's no, there's no additional charging of God's people here. It's very assuring. Oh, actually, the, the poem, too, ends... Uh, Go back and read chapter 5, too. I encourage you guys to do this to get more of a bigger picture here. But in 531, the poem ends with, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but this is the key, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. That, too, is assuring. Deborah sings it here, but just the idea that God has friends. May all his enemies be destroyed, but may he also make some of his enemies his friends, which is what Jesus is classic at this. He takes really bad people and enemies and brings them over and adopts them into his family. So, so the church then, on this side of the cross, this is, this is who we are. If you're a Christian here, this is who you are. You're the friend of God now. Or as Jesus says, actually it's a, it's a shot that the Pharisees take at Jesus, but they're actually speaking good theology, don't realize it when they say it, but they say, oh, Jesus friend of sinners. But actually, that's not exactly what he is. They don't understand that they just like preached, you know, and they're trying to rip on Jesus, but they just preached a sermon there. Jesus is friend of prostitutes. He, he's a friend of the worst people you can think of right now in your mind. He's a friend of you. If you believe and trust and reach out, have that type of depending faith on him, uh, in him and what he's done for you, you transfer from being of the seed of the serpent and, in, and the devil's family, as Jesus says, into being a part of the family of God. So Deborah then is a reassurer. And, and I encourage you guys if you, um, well, I guess two, there's two layers to this. One, be assured by God that you can never lose your salvation and that God fights for you. But two, be a voice piece of that to someone. I, I mean, I can almost guarantee you, you know a Christian who needs to be assured by the gospel. They've forgotten it. They don't know who God is anymore. They don't, they've forgotten what grace is. And maybe you have. This is a huge part of kind of widespread church ministry, like Deborah, assuring. Remember that God is before you, fighting your battles today. Remember that there's no charge that can be brought against you. Remember what Jesus did for you, how much he loved you. This is the ministry of Deborah. This is how she whispers God and the love and assurance of God in that. Second, Barak and Jael fight like Jesus. Uh, and this is huge. There's a twist in this I'll give in a second. But what we see here is like she risked her life 
And even more, as it says explicitly, Zebulun, Barak's army, part of Barak's army, as it says in the song, the poem, risked their lives to death, so did Jesus. So, so we see really clearly here that part of what, what's happening is there, there's a, a risk being taken on both these individuals' levels. With Jesus, it's even greater, though, because he risks his life unto death, whereas these two just risk their life. Christ actually dies for our, for our sins. This is unbelievable that God is like this. Still, I mean, today, this is his posture towards sinners, this willingness to risk, and not just risk, but lay down his life. And so the, the, the twist here then, and we've been saying this throughout the series, this is a really important, really important couple of paradox to connect here. Is that Jesus is kind of like Sisera, the evil general here as well. So the big theme we've been talking about in this series is that Jesus is a destroyer of sin, but the way that he does that is kind of by becoming sin for us. That's why it's very complicated and, and nuanced. But, but Jesus is like all the nightmares of judges. He's like all of the judgments of judges. He's like all of the wicked kings of judges. Even though he's not wicked, he takes it on. Like in, in 1 Corinthians, it, it talks about how, or 2 Corinthians, it talks about how Jesus is not sin, but he, he isn't a sinner, but he became sin for us so we can become clean. But the twist here is that Jesus also, if you, if you look at um, aspects of the narrative, it's fairly easy to see, is that Jesus also was pierced with a long peg or nail for us. And so understanding then the horror that Jesus went through for us. If you see in John 19 or something and it says, and they crucified Jesus, and it's hard for you to feel the weight of that pain, maybe go to Judges and feel the weight of the pain of a, a tent peg going through your temple. That's what it was like. And, and there's a connection there, so understanding the horror that Jesus went through for us on the cross is close to understanding with what veracity and decisiveness God destroyed our sin. Those, those are very connected. They go hand in hand. So love and power, justice and mercy. And then God's love loosens that power of sin over our lives because he kills it. And so we're invited into that place of, like Israel here in the story, taking the fight with the Spirit guiding us uh, to our old lives and continuing to become new creations. So this is where the gospel is in this story, guys. It's, it's very, it's layered. It's not as simple, that's why I say, albeit crude, that cheat sheet earlier, because it's not as simple as saying Sisera is a picture of sin. Sisera is also kind of a picture of Jesus. And these kinds of narratives protect us from getting watered down with our gospel. You know, if, if Christianity is, uh, for us, uh, you know, just a social agenda, it gets really hard to understand why these stories are in the Bible at all. Why do we have this type of grossness? Why do we have temple crushing? If Jesus just came into the world, as, as some voices say, to die on a cross in an example of humility, to go and kind of just turn the other cheek for people as the ultimate version of that, and just to be a moral example for us, why do we have Judges 4 and 5? They're, they're like, it's like they're on different narrative planes. They're not a part of the same like, meta-narrative. But if it's about the gospel, Judges 4 and 5 actually mixes quite well with what we understand that actually happened on the cross. 
If sin needs to be destroyed, Judges 4 and 5, actually, that makes a lot of sense. If our sin is big, Judges 4 and 5 makes a lot of sense. But if it's just about, just about loving people well, um, you know, we, we just don't need narratives like this. They don't fit. And so they protect us. They, they, they remind us of what the center is. They protect us of what the, from what the center is not. And they show us what God went through, what he had to go through. To, to die for our sins. Okay, so it's an invitation to believe this. Some of you guys have never believed this before, and I think what this is saying is believe in this. This type of Savior who kills our sin, dies for it, forgives us, ushers in the forgiveness of God by way of his own death, by way of being pierced for us like Sisera before him. All right, so as we were talking about, as God loosens the power of sin over our lives, you know, because he kills it, this is what happens. As we're moved by love and forgiveness, this is, this is what happens. And there's a lot, this is a whole other sermon here. I'm not going to preach it. Uh, I'm going to end here. But um, one thing I do want to say, it's a bit of an aside, but it's an important one. Uh, sometimes at, at the church, we, we talk specifically to certain genders because uh, it comes up in the Bible. The Bible addresses men, it addresses women, it addresses husbands and wives. And there's something, I think, in this passage specifically about women that are super, that's super encouraging for women in particular. And so uh, I just want to highlight that now with a few words, uh, a couple sentences here on that. Though there's much to say, you know, I, I think Judges 4 and 5, and I, I'm speaking more about JL, looking more at JL here, but, you know, Deborah's a piece to this. Um, just on one level, a broad level first, is that um, you see women having this extremely key uh, indispensable role in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in the world. Uh, you see that. And you're seeing that here kind of on a, a, a you know, a two levels really with, the, with these two women. <clears throat> but we see it here. Judges 4 and 5, I think, speaks to why, with jail a little bit more in mind here, speaks to why we need and should celebrate when we have passionate, sin-killing women in the church. You know, so if you're a Christian woman, uh, and, I'll, and I'll speak to our Hiawatha women for a second. If you're a part of another church, then please hear this too. But um, those of you women that call, it, call this church home, in your mind, draw a line from Eve to Jael to you. And don't underestimate what your strength in the gospel is as a woman and what it can do to bring health to the church and to send shivers up the devil's spine. Certainly men can do this too, but there's something unique, I think, about femaleness and JL, femaleness, and that God made that promise to a woman, uh, kind of against the devil, but kind of through a woman in the beginning, that can, uh, if we're careful as a church, and Christian women are careful, uh, to pray through this and think about this and to celebrate this, because it's happening here, that, you know, when, when, you, when you have strength in the gospel, man, it, it can bring such health to a church and send those shivers up the devil's spine in a way that would hearken him and us back uh, to that first promise. So, so my encouragement for you guys is, uh, again, Christian women here is, you guys are daughters of Eve. You're daughters of JL. And even more than that, you're shares in Christ, the ultimate sin crusher. And, and so I, I think... In a way, it's indirect, but I think what this passage says to you uh, is with tent peg in hand, rely on the blood of Jesus. And next to your brothers in the church, you know, crush things like 
selfishness and uh, propensity to compare and other kinds of sin in your life and celebrate that when it's happening because it is happening here uh, on a wide scale level and something we should want for our daughters uh, and, and men. We should want for our wives and pray for them and want for the women here uh, on, again, a wide scale level. But, but again, with ten peg in hand, slay your sin. And, and, think, and just remember that your lives, just as women in the church, I think can continue the legacy of J.L., and hearken our church back to that early promise in the garden when God said to the devil and to sin, I will put enmity between you and the, who? The woman. Which again reminds us of her seed, Christ. And there's no calling or purpose in life better than to remind and declare and to point to him. And so... So be encouraging this, you guys. It's something that crosses the gender line. But if you're a woman, there's something special about being a woman in the gospel who kills sin. And as Proverbs 31 says, who laughs at the days to come confidently, not in herself, but confident in Christ and his, in his love for, for her. That as men, we just can't do. You know, we're, we're not as Eve-like. We're not as jail-like, just in a physiological way. So when that's happening, I think it harkens us back as a church to that first promise in a very special way. And again, I think in a very real way, sin shivers up the devil's spine. So, so do this. Uh, love Christ, cling to him, and make this church healthy by slaying sin and helping others to do the same and to bask in the blood of Christ, which is the death knell of the devil uh, and, and sin. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, what this passage means, Father. Thank you that it is about you and about the gospel. Help us to respond well. Uh, God, to this passage in taking communion and worshiping uh, the God of, uh, of all of our victories, spiritual and physical. You're, you're the, the giver of all those things. So thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Well, for the rest of our time, we're going to uh, sing through a few songs and take communion together.